Coffee Break Collection 16. Crime. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After the Crime by Constant Guerreau. Part 1. It was at the extremity of a village. A window was hurriedly thrown open and a man appeared at it, his features livid his eyes haggard, his lips agitated by a convulsive tremor. His right hand grasped a knife from which blood was dripping, drop by drop. He cast a look into the silent country, then sprang to the ground and set off running away through the fields. At the end of a quarter of an hour he stopped, exhausted, breathless, at the edge of a wood twenty paces from a highway. He searched for the most closely grown, the most impenetrable spot to be found, and pressed his way into it, regardless of the thorns that were tearing him. Then he began to dig up the earth with his knife. When he had made a hole a foot deep, he placed the weapon in it, and covered it with the soil he had dug out, recovered it with a grass sod which he had trampled down solidly, after which he sat down upon the wet grass. He listened and appeared terrified by the silence which hung upon the country. It was the hour when the darkness of night is replaced by that gray and uniform tint which is neither day nor night, and through which objects look like phantoms. It seemed to him that he was alone in this funereal immensity, in the midst of this dumb and dim nature. Suddenly a sound made him start. It was the axle of a wagon creaking on the road, a league away, perhaps. But in the silence this strange and discordant noise made itself heard with singular distinctness. Then nature awoke little by little. The lark took flight towards the blue sky, pouring out his notes at once timid and charming, overflowing with life and happiness. A winged tribe began to sing and flutter amid the leaves glittering with dew. On all sides, in the moss on which the golden insect was crawling, to the branch of the highest oak where the bird voluptuously plumed herself in the ether, arose a morning concert so harmonious in its confusion, so potent in its delirium, so full of greeting to the first rays coming from the east that it might well be called a hymn to the sun. Nature expanded herself radiant and virginal. All was grace, freshness, sparkle in the forest where a blue mist still floated. All was calm and hushed in the plain, the great lines of which undulated to infinity, the gray tones of which grew light under the reflection of the blue sky. The murderer rose. His limbs trembled and his teeth clattered one against the other. He cast furtive glances around him, then parted the branches with precaution, stopping, starting, drawing back his head hastily at the least sound. Then at length he quitted the densely grown thicket in which he had buried his knife. He pressed forward deeper into the forest, choosing always the most shaded portions and avoiding the open parts and the beaten paths, making frequent stoppages to listen or to examine the ground before him ere he advanced. In this way he walked all day without being conscious of fatigue, so great was the agony which dominated him. He paused at the entrance to a grove of beeches, whose imposing trunks stood white and smooth like thousands of columns crowned with foliage. A calm day, a harmonious silence added to the impression of grandeur and retirement made by this beautiful spot. Something animate seemed to throb amid the luminous shade of the motionless boughs, 
as if a soul were there amid the shadows, murmuring mysterious syllables. The fugitive felt ill at ease, and creeping like a reptile forced his way under a clump of thorn-bushes, the density of which completely hid him. When he was in safety, he first raised his hand to his head, and then to his stomach, and muttered, I am hungry. The sound of his voice made him shudder. It was the first time he had heard it since the murder, and it resounded in his ears like a knell and a menace. For some moments he remained motionless and held his breath, as if in fear of having been heard. When he had become a little calmer, he felt in his pockets one after the other. They contained a few sous. That will be enough, he said in a low tone. In six hours I shall have crossed the frontier. Then I can show myself. I can work, and shall be saved. At the end of an hour he felt the cold begin to stiffen his limbs, for with the coming of night the dew fell, and his only clothes were a linen blouse and trousers of the same material. He rose, and cautiously quitting his thorn-bushes continued his march. He halted at the first signs of dawn. He had reached the limits of the forest, and must now enter upon the open country, must show himself in the full light of day and struck with terror by this thought, he dared not advance a step further. While he was standing hidden in a thicket, the sound of horses' hoofs was heard. He turned pale. Gendarmes, he gasped, crouching down upon the ground. It was a farm laborer going to the fields with two horses harnessed to a wagon. He was whistling a country air while retying the lash of his whip. Jacques, a voice cried to him. The peasant turned round. Hello! Is that you, Francois? Where are you going so early? Oh, I'm going to wash this bundle of linen at the spring close by. I'm going within two steps of it. Put your bundle on one of my beasts. Thanks. That's not to be refused. How's the wife and the little ones, all of them? I'm the weakest of the family, replied Jacques, laughing loudly. All goes well. Work, joy, and health. He tied his lash, and the sharp crack was repeated by echo after echo. The murderer followed him with his eyes as far as he could see him. Then a deep sigh escaped from his lips, and his gaze turned to the open country spreading before him. I must get on, he murmured. It is twenty-four hours since I. All is discovered. I am being sought. An hour's delay may ruin me. He made up his mind resolutely and quitted the forest. At the end of ten minutes he came within sight of a church-tower. Then he slackened his pace, a prey to a thousand conflicting feelings, drawn towards the village by hunger, restrained by the fear which counseled him to avoid habitations. However, after a long struggle, during which he had advanced as much as possible under the screen of outhouses and bushes, he was about to enter the village, when he saw something glitter about a hundred paces from him was the brass badge and the pommel of a rural policeman's sabre. He may have my description, he murmured with a shudder. And shrinking back quickly, he ran to a little wood which extended on his left, and hid himself in it, pushing further and further into its depths, forgetting his hunger and thinking only of flying from the village and the rural policeman. But he speedily reached the end of the wood, which was of very small extent. Beyond, the plain began again. 
On peering from between the branches he saw a man seated on the grass eating his breakfast. It was Jacques, the farm laborer. Nothing could be more pleasant than the corner he had chosen for his breakfast-room. It was a sort of little stony ravine, through which ran two deep wheel-ruts, but carpeted with grass and moss, and bordered with creepers green-leaved, yellow, or purple, according to the caprices of that powerful colorist called Autumn. The wheel-ruts were full of limpid water, at the bottom of which glittered little white stones, smooth and transparent as onyx. Finally this pretty nest was shaded by a cluster of birch-trees with reddish-silvery trunks and foliage light and trembling. Above this oasis spread ploughed fields on which hung white and closely woven the virgin threads, floating and sparkling like an immense silver net. Jacques's breakfast consisted of a hunch of bread and a piece of cheese washed down with big draughts of cider claret, which he drank out of a stone pitcher cooled in the water of the wheel-ruts. The peasant's strong white teeth buried themselves in the bread with an appetite which might have made a capitalist desire to share his frugal meal, which he only interrupted now and then to give a friendly word to his two horses, which a few paces off were feeding in brotherly fashion from the same wisp of hay. "'He's happy, he is,' murmured the murderer. Then from the depths of his conscience he added, "'Yes, work, love of family, peace and happiness are there.' He was tempted to accost Jocks and ask him for a piece of bread, but a glance at his tattered dress forbade him showing himself, and then it seemed to him that his features bore the stamp of his crime and must denounce him to whoever looked upon him. A sound made him turn his head, and through the branches he saw an old man covered with rags. He walked bent double, a stick in his hand and a canvas bag slung to his neck by a cord. It was a beggar. The murderer watched him with envious eyes, and again he murmured, What would I not give to be in his place? He begs, but he is free. He goes where he pleases in the wide air, in the broad sunlight, with a calm heart, with a tranquil conscience, eating without fear and agony the bread given to him in charity, able to look behind him without seeing a dead body, beside him without dreading to find a gendarme at his elbow, before him without seeing a vision of the scaffold. Yes, he is happy, that old mendicant, and I may well envy him his lot. Suddenly he turned pale. A nervous trembling agitated all his limbs, and his features were drawn up like those of an epileptic. There they are, he stammered, his eyes fixed upon a point in the road. With haggard eye bewildered, mad with terror, he looked on all sides, seeking to find a place of concealment but so strangely was he overcome by fear that his eyes saw nothing, and his mind was incapable of thought. During this time the gendarmes approached rapidly. The gallop of horses and the clanking of arms suddenly brought back to him his presence of mind, and seeing before him an elm, the foliage of which was dense enough to hide him from sight, he climbed up it with the agility of a squirrel. He was in safety when the two gendarmes halted on the road a few paces from him. He listened, motionless, terrified, a prey to emotion so violent that he could hear the beating of the heart within him. "'What if we search this wood?' said one of the gendarmes. "'It's too small,' said the other. "'It's not there that our man would take his refuge, rather in a forest.' "'Anyhow, it will be prudent to beat it up.' "'No,' replied his comrade, "'it would be time lost, and the assassin has already a ten-hour start on us.' 
and they went on at a trot. The murderer breathed again. He felt a renewed life. But this agony passed, a suffering for the moment forgotten made itself felt anew, and he cried, My God, how hungry I am! He had not eaten for forty-eight hours. His legs gave way under him. He was seized with giddiness and a humming in the ears. And yet he no more thought of going to the village for bread. The gendarmes, the scaffold, those two phantoms ceaselessly rose before him and overmastered even the pangs of famine. While his restless ears were on the watch for all sounds in the country, the dreary tolling of a bell made him start. It was the bell of the village church, sounding the funeral knell. The murderer listened, pale, downcast, shuddering at every stroke as if the clapper of the bell had struck upon his heart. Then big tears fell slowly from his eyes, and streamed down his cheeks unobserved by him, without his making any attempt to stop their flow. It was because these funeral sounds evoked in his imagination a picture at once terrible and heart-rending. At that same hour, the bell of another village church was tolling like this for another death. "'Oh, wretch, wretch that I am!' sighed the murderer, covering his face with both his hands. He listened again to the strokes of the church bell, which sounded to him like the sobs of the poor victim, and he murmured, "'Oh, idleness! It led me to the tavern.' And the tavern, this is what has come of it, three orphans, a poor wife in the ground, and I, a monster hateful to all, hunted like a wild beast, pursued without rest or truce until the hour when they shall have driven me to the scaffold. Horrible, horrible destiny, and yet too mild a punishment. He remained in the tree until night had come. When he saw the stars shine in the sky, when in the vast solitude around him he heard nothing but that vague breathing which seems like the respiration of the sleeping earth, then only he ventured to descend to rest himself. He stretched himself at the foot of the tree and closed his eyes. But fear which would not quit him, hunger which gnawed at his vitals, kept him constantly awake, and he rose at the first sign of dawn overwhelmed, bowed down at once by alarm, fatigue, and the fasting of nearly three days. End of After the Crime Part 1 Recording by Philip Gould